Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 16. I want to complete the message that I began two weeks ago with you, contrasting grace and self. I have a great burden for the church because the church at large has been affected, especially in America, by what Paul describes in Colossians as empty and hollow and deceptive philosophies. And those empty, hollow, deceptive philosophies have to do with an emphasis on ourself. Now, on the surface of it, all of us would would repudiate selfishness, self-centeredness. I mean, that's a given. We've heard that. We know all about that. And we would repudiate that. Would say, "I want I don't want to be selfish. I'm not. I don't want to be a self-centered person." All of that is contradictory to biblical Christianity and to all that we stand for and we believe in. However, we still struggle with ourselves. We've been talking about legalism. We talk have been talking in the past months about grace and legalism. Legalism is very simply performing in order to be accepted. The real simple definition of legalism. Legalism is not to be confused with a call to obedience. Please hear me. For when we are making a strong stand for obedience to the Lord, we are accused of being legalistic. There's a big, big difference. We are to be obedient. We are to perform. We are to do that which God commands us to, but not in order to gain His acceptance, but rather because we are accepted and we are accepted in Christ. It is so vital that we understand that message. Because if we don't, then we are terribly, terribly um, mistaken and led astray, confused. The Bible tells us that we are to grow in grace. That means we're to be mature as Christians. That means that we are to uh, reflect to greater and greater and greater degrees, the very image of Christ in our life. In fact, the Bible tells us in the New Testament, in a couple of places, that we are being conformed to the image of Christ. Paul, in one place in Galatians chapter 2, says, it is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. So the point of our life is not that we be seen so much, but rather that Christ be seen much more clearly in and through our lives Can you imagine a church in which every member of that church is like Jesus? Would that be an interesting church to belong to? Absolutely. Would that church have power in it, in its midst? Sure. Would that church have a powerful testimony witness in that community? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so this is what God is calling us to. God is calling us to be conformed to the image of Christ. That means growing in grace. That we're to be more gracious people. 
You and I cannot do that in and of ourselves. We don't have the capacity, we don't have the wherewithal to will ourselves to be more gracious genuinely. Now we may try to do it. We may make every effort, every resolution, like we do on New Year's. I resolve this year. (laughs) And I'm going to be a more gracious person. But it's not but 20 minutes later that we fall short and we fail in terms of being gracious and we resort to our innate selfishness and self-centeredness. I say innate because that's what we're born with. We're born with a self-centered, selfish nature that must be crucified. That's why we have to be born again. Born again spiritually so at the very core of our being we're new and we yet remain and we await the final redemption of our bodies so that everything that we were originally born with is done away with and we're completely renovated, we're completely made new. That's, that's what God has for us. But the greatest obstacle to grace and to growing in grace is self. The greatest obstacle. The tension that we live with is to resist the temptation to get back on the throne of our life. Jesus must sit on that throne. Our constant refrain must be, Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Not my will, but yours be done. Now, Jesus echoes all of this when he talks to us in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, in verse 24. He said to his disciples, he said to those who, who purported to follow him, he said to those who were saying, we're, we're with you. He says, in effect, okay, now if you're with me, if you're going to be my disciple, if you're going to be a Christian, really, then you must deny yourself. You must deny yourself. Circle the word must. Underline the word must in that passage. You must deny yourself. It's absolute. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. There's no no negotiating. This is non-negotiable. You must deny yourself. Because if you don't deny yourself, then you're your own measure of what's true and right. You can pay all the lip service in the world to God that you want, but the reality is, in your life, you are on the throne. You must deny yourself. You must recognize that you are a sinner. You are sinful. There is nothing in you that's worth redeeming. Nothing in you that's good. That's why the whole, your whole being has to be made new. Not just part of you. Everything about us has to be made new. Deny yourself. This is the essence of repentance. The very essence of repentance is this. You're walking one way. Most of us, all of us, walk in life normally, humanly speaking, to please who? Ourselves. I do everything to please myself. I do everything to make sure that my life is comfortable. It's easy that I have all the benefits. And if I can throw a few bones to some people around me, I will. But the essence of genuine repentance is to turn around from walking a life to please myself to start walking to please who? God. That's repentance. Lord, not my will anymore, but your will be done. Is this an easy thing to do? No, it's impossible. 
it's absolutely impossible. First of all, you've got to have a brand new nature to even, even be able to even do that. And that's where it comes, you have to be born again. And then daily, now you've got to deny yourself. Daily, you've got to say, no, nope, no, no, <laughs> no. Because my flesh wants me to go this way. My spirit wants me to go this way. Galatians chapter 5 talks about the battle between the flesh and the spirit. It is a furious battle. Anybody know about that? The greatest obstacle in our life to growing in grace is a preoccupation with me, self, what I want. And the tragedy is that there are people, respected, well-known people in the church today, nationally known teachers, educators, who are underscoring an emphasis on self as the solution for our human dilemmas and troubles. Well-meaning, sincere, wonderful people. But they're wrong. They're wrong. We've already discovered in the past couple of weeks, if you were, you've been with us, what the Bible says about things like self-worth. What the Bible says about things like self-assurance or self-sufficiency or self-love or self-confidence, self-assertiveness. And the Bible says that these things lead us down a blind path. But they're things that all of us have been raised with. All of us have been taught. All of us have been encouraged with. Self-confidence. My whole life I've struggled to be self-confident. I was taught to be self-confident. My father urged me, be self-confident. Don't be a wimp. Get out there and show them what you can do. And so my whole life I've been burdened with this thing that I've carried around to be self-confident. And it's been a horrible burden. It's been a horrible burden. Beloved, I'm here to tell you that the scriptures don't teach us to be self-confident. You say, well, aren't we supposed to be confident? Aren't we supposed to have any confidence? Yes! <laughs> Proverbs, chapter 3, verse 26. Our confidence is in the Lord. He is our confidence. Proverbs, chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. It doesn't say, trust in the Lord with part of your heart and trust in yourself with the rest of it. It's a trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Because your own understanding is fallible, it's weak, it's incomplete. Don't think like you know it all. 
He goes on, he says, he says, acknowledge him in all of your ways. That means in every endeavor of life, bring it under the lordship of Christ. In every endeavor of life, say, Lord, your will be done. You guide me. And you search the word to find out what God's principles are that have to do with that, that area of your life. Marriage. You're going to get married? God, I want to dedicate my marriage to you, really. You study the Bible. You find out what it means to be a husband or a wife according to God's design. You acknowledge Him in your marriage. If you're going to be a parent, what does it mean to be a parent biblically? Acknowledge Him and live it out. But not in your own self-confidence. Not in your own training. Not in your own knowledge. Matters not if you have half a dozen PhDs after your name. You're a, a child psychologist. What matters is that you know this book. This is the Master Designer's Handbook. He said, acknowledge me in all of your ways. And I will make your path straight, he said. You can't make your path straight. I'll make it straight for you. That's a blank check. That's an open door. That's a guarantee. I'll make your path straight. That's what he says. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 9. Back in the Old Testament. If you brought a Bible, I want you to be with me now. Jeremiah chapter 9. Don't come to church, bring a Bible, and just let it sit on your lap. Where's your Bible? It's at home. Hmm, good place. Bring your wife next time. I'm not being mean. No, Theo would have his Bible. Jeremiah, if you know anything about Jeremiah, Jeremiah's ministry was exceedingly frustrating. Of all the years that he ministered to Israel, that he preached to Israel, not one person listened to him. Now why do I say that? Isn't that pretty? You got a girl's Bible. Not one person listened to Jeremiah. But we're going to listen to him this morning, aren't we? Amen. 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 All right, verse 23 and 24. Verses 23 and 24. This is what the Lord says. Now listen to Jeremiah's words. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. What are the things that the Lord delights in? Kindness, justice, and righteousness. Those are the things. Those are not necessarily the things that we measure our economy by. We measure things of our economy by what? Strength, riches, wisdom, human wisdom. And we boast in those things. We trust in those things. But God says, no, 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 no. That was exactly what Israel boasted in. Let us listen to Jeremiah. He does not call us to be confident in ourselves. In fact, if you remember from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31... That passage when Paul reminds the Corinthians and us about who we were when we were called. He said, we weren't wise. 
We didn't have it together. In fact, we were weak. We were lowly. We were less than nothing when God called us. So we have nothing in terms of saying, I'm self-confident, or to seek a measure of self-confidence. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, we hear this. We who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, place no confidence in the flesh. So we're to place no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. That speaks to the issue of self-confidence. If you are seeking after self-confidence, if you're trying to be a self-confident person, you're setting yourself up for a huge failure. We are not adequate in ourselves. Our adequacy is from the Lord. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul writes this, Not that we are competent to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. Our competence comes from God. So we don't seek self-confidence. Well, what about self-esteem? We're told that we should esteem ourselves. We're told that the solution to our problems is a greater sense of self-esteem. We're told that if we don't want our children to grow up like murderers and rapists and homicidal maniacs, that we should make sure that we build their self-esteem, that they feel significant. (laughs) Sounds logical, doesn't it? Sounds reasonable. It's taught by some of the most prominent people in the Christian world today. And it's being swallowed and taken without exception, without question, by far, far too many people. Beloved, the issue is not self-esteem. The issue is growing spiritually. The issue is becoming a mature Christian. You do not become a mature Christian by somebody trying to build you up in terms of your self-esteem. We're to deny ourselves. How many people have a sense, an awareness of their need for, for, for fulfillment in their life. Okay? Are we to be fulfilled? Does God mean for us to be fulfilled? Absolutely. But what does He mean for us to be filled with? The Holy Spirit. He commands us. Be being kept filled with what? The Spirit. Because if we're not filled with the Spirit, we're going to be filled with what? Ourself. Ourself. You deny yourself, you pick up the cross, and because it requires the Spirit of God to fill your life to carry that cross. Self esteem, no. You say, well, doesn't the Bible say we should esteem one, esteem one another higher than ourselves? Yes, but only in the context of relationship with Jesus Christ. My real value, my real meaning only comes in relationship with Christ, not myself. Well, what should I tell my kids? How should I train my kids? 
Disciple them like you disciple anybody else. Teach them how to lean on Jesus. Teach them how to know the Lord. Teach them how to walk in righteousness. Don't teach them to keep focusing on themselves. Simply disciple them just like you disciple anybody else who comes into the kingdom of God. Am I making sense? Some of you still aren't sure yet. I understand. Bear with me. Let's look at the scriptures. Apart from Christ, we have no inherent value in ourselves. Psalm 90, verse 3. Psalm 90, verse 3 says, We are like the dust. How many people do dusting around their house? My mom taught me, growing up, my mom taught me how to clean a house. I can clean a house with the best of them. I'm, I scrub floors, toilets, mirrors, sinks, dust, vacuum. I do it all. I do the baseboards. I get it all. Yes, I do the baseboards. <laughs> and I roll up the toothpaste, too. When you dust, when you dust, do you save the dust? Do you esteem it highly? Do you preserve it? No, what do you do with the dust? You throw it away. We are like the dust. Psalm 144, verse 4. Man is like a breath. His days are like a fleeting shadow. We're here today, gone tomorrow. It ain't very long, we're here. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 24. 1 Peter 1, 24. We're like the grass. What do you do when you cut your grass? Do you esteem it highly and save all the clippings? Well, some of us do. We put it, what, in a compost pile. <laughs> Make fertilizer out of it. We're like the grass. You'll love this one. Jeremiah 51, 17. God had some choice things to say through Jeremiah. We're stupid and without knowledge. You look it up, it's there. I'm not making this stuff up. Jeremiah 51, 17. We are stupid and without knowledge. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 17. We're regarded by God as worthless and less than nothing. Isaiah 40, 17. We're regarded by God as worthless and less than nothing. Daniel chapter 4, verse 35. We are regarded by God as insignificant. Well, wait a minute. I'm not sure I can handle all this stuff. Well, you look up the verses. The Daniel passage, those words come out of Nebuchadnezzar's mouth. Nebuchadnezzar was the greatest of the ancient Near, East, Near Eastern rulers. He ruled and established the kingdom of Babylon. And then he went around and he said, look what I've done. Look at how great I am. Look at my kingdom. And then God whew, humbled him. Laid him low for seven years in which his hair grew long, his fingernails grew long. He chewed grass like a cow. And finally, at the end of that period, he looked up. And God healed him from his insanity. That's what the scriptures say. God delivered him from his insanity and he gave glory to God and he acknowledged that man is insignificant. He got it right. 
He got it right. He got the proper perspective. And yet, we're told that we must esteem ourselves highly. We're told to focus on ourselves. The solution to our problems, the solution to our grief, the solution to our frustrations is only found in Christ and obedience to Him. Not asserting ourselves. Not looking for other people to esteem us. Not building up our kids' self-esteem, but teaching them to live in a life that's dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, in the face of all of this, God, in His merciful love, cares for us. In His merciful love, cares for us. When you understand who you are really in the grand scheme of things and the fact that God cares for you in the incredible expanse of the universe on this little tiny speck of dust in the universe called the planet Earth, these little itsy-bitsy, little teeny-weeny insignificant creatures called human beings. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 8, verse 4. What, what is man that you are mindful of him? What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? God, why me? Why would you save me? What did I do to deserve it? Nothing. Why? Because I'm merciful. Because I'm rich in mercy. See, we've got to have the proper perspective, beloved. Because without it, you set yourself up, the devil sets you up, the world sets you up, your peer group sets you up, even the church sets you up for a huge failure, great deception. After receiving Jesus Christ into our lives, our value is found in Him and in knowing Him. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. Our value is in knowing Christ and being in relationship with Him. Listen to Paul's words. Humanly speaking, Paul was a substantial man. Well-educated, brilliant, respected, had it all. Rich, He says, verse 7, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. He says, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own. Where was Paul's hope? He was in Christ. If Paul were standing here today, and he were to talk about esteem, he would say, find your sense of esteem in Christ. In fact, we have a book in the bookstore called Christ Esteem. Christ Esteem. You want to learn how to live as a Christian and have a good image of yourself? Read that book. Because that book is just going to tell you everything I'm telling you here, but in much more detail. 
self-righteousness. Self manifests itself in that area. In, 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 in my own sense of righteousness. Anybody here ever defend themselves? You ever say, but, 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 you don't understand. <laughs> Let me tell you. Let me defend myself. All that is, is an expression of self-righteousness. We don't have to defend ourselves. Even if you're absolutely categorically right about something and someone totally misunderstands you, you know what? You do not have to fight for yourself. If God is for me, who in the world possibly can be against me? What do I have to sweat? But if I still have the need to defend myself, then I'm still expressing a measure of self-righteousness. It's something we battle with every day, don't we? Every one of us. There's a constant tension in our life. We are not righteous in ourselves. Far from it. In Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3. Psalm 14, the psalmist writes this. There is no one righteous, not even one. It's like he makes this proclamation. There's nobody who's righteous. But there's always some guy standing over here on the side. But what about me? What about me? He says, no, not even you. Not even one. And Paul repeats that refrain in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. He says, there's no one righteous. Not even one. No one who seeks God. No one who understands. No one who does good. I mean, that's a description of man's depravity. That's a description of the state of man and his unrighteousness. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20. Ecclesiastes 7, 20. There is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. So there's nothing. You and I can't claim anything. We can't say, but hey, God, what about me? I'm cool. No, you're not cool. It's impossible for us to earn a righteous standing before God. Flip over to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. This is great. In verse 9 of Luke chapter 18, Luke writes this editorial comment before he quotes Jesus. He says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness. Now, when you're confident of your own righteousness, how does that work out? Don't you find yourself taking on an air of superiority, looking down on other people? When you're confident in your own righteousness, you say, I would never do that. Things like that. To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. To be self-righteous is to look down on other people. If you have an attitude of superiority, if you are judgmental and critical, that means that you are self-righteous. And hence, in need of repentance. (laughs) So he goes on, he tells this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And a tax collector, remember, were hated people in Israel. Despised, wretched. The Pharisee stood up and prayed. How did he pray? What does it say? Prayed about who? Prayed about himself. Or a variant reading, prayed to himself. (laughs) 
Do you know, there's a lot of people praying to themselves. There's a lot of people talking to themselves when they pray. I've had people in my office. I have married couples. This is a classic. Married couples in my office periodically who are having some measure of difficulty and they're just at odds or at great distance from each other. They're so selfish and preoccupied with themselves and their own agendas. And I say, well, let's kneel down and pray. So you kneel down, you're all, we're all praying. And you hear, God, speak to my husband. God, speak to my wife. Straighten her out. Now, who's that person talking to? The other person. They're sending messages, aren't they? They're not praying. It's wonderful. It's exciting. You ought to hear it. You go, oh, man. And you got to stop the whole thing and you got to say, well, let's pray this way. Let's talk to God. Let's bless each other rather than curse each other. You see, it's impossible. Here, he goes on and he says, this, this Pharisee, he says, he stands up talking about himself, praying to himself. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like all the other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even like this tax gatherer. In fact, God, I fast twice a week. And I tithe, tenth of all I get. Wow. God's lucky to get that guy, isn't he? <laughs> I hear people say, you know, if so-and-so could just get saved, oh, if that person could, could just get saved, boy, God could really use them in the kingdom, and they could really... I say, time. Don't look at what that person has to offer. That person has nothing to offer except brokenness, sin, selfishness, and pain. We just pray that that person gets saved and God would somehow use them. But see, we we tend to focus on our human talents and abilities. We tend to focus on that which we glory in. And we think, God, if you just had me in the kingdom, if you just had so-and-so in the kingdom, whoo, man, things would really fly. No, God doesn't need us. He goes on. He says, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's a guy who has the right perspective. He has nothing to credit himself to God. He says, I tell you that this man, the latter one, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. It's a law. It's a fact of life. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. In Titus chapter 3, verse 5, listen to this. God saved us not because of the righteous things we have done, but because he is rich in mercy. That's why he saved us, because he's rich in mercy. He owes me nothing. Owes me nothing. The best that I can do in my own strength, in my own merit, is considered by God, according to Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, as nothing more than filthy rags. The very best I can do is filthy rags. Filthy rags. Would you put on filthy rags? No, of course not. But we expect God to put them on? To adorn his kingdom with our filthy rags? Our best 
is absolutely worthless when compared to the value of faith in Jesus Christ. And our true righteousness, our only righteousness, is found only in Christ. Beloved, we have nothing to offer. And until we come to that realization, we are not in a place where we can truly repent and receive God's grace and mercy in our life. What about self-exaltation? I don't know about you, but I love to be commended. In fact, I find subtle ways to commend myself. I don't like it, but I do it. Probably in that sense. The Bible teaches us that commending ourselves has absolutely no value. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 18. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one who the Lord commends. I want to hear in the worst way those words when I finally get to glory. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. But sometimes I can't wait till eternity. Sometimes I want to hear those words now. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. boy. Now that's my human side. That's my selfishness. And there's always a battle there. I've got to keep that stuff at bay. Calm down. Calm down. Settle down. Though you want that, you don't need it. I don't? No. Why? Because God has already accepted you. And you wait for His commendation. You wait for His commendation. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 tells us that if we commend ourselves, that we show our lack of biblical understanding and biblical wisdom. Listen to this. Paul says, we do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. <gasps> Ooh, I'm going to distance myself from those people. I don't want to be around those people. I don't want to associate with those people. When they measure themselves by themselves, he says, and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. They are the measure. They're making themselves the measure when in fact it's God who is the measure. Who do we compare with? God. When we compare ourselves with God, we come out severely lacking. Would you agree? Exalting oneself is characteristic of a person who is rebellious. Turn to Isaiah chapter 14. Flip back to the Old Testament. This is a classic passage wherein we see Satan in his fall. Isaiah chapter 14. Satan is the archetype of a rebellious person. And we see that self-exaltation is is characteristic of that rebelliousness. Verse 13 and 14. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountains. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. You see all those I statements? 
I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be cool. I'm going to achieve this. I'm going to achieve that. Watch out. You've just set yourself up for a fall. Look at verse 15. But you are brought down to the grave. Pride comes before the fall. Self-exaltation. A haughty spirit prepares you for devastation. Those who exalt themselves, Jesus says, will be humbled. But those who humble themselves will be exalted. And Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, Peter says, when God exalts you, He'll do so at the proper time. We're in the starting gates. Good. When am I going to get exalted? When am I going to... God says, cool your jets, buddy. I'll exalt you at the proper time. When you can handle it. (laughs) Do you see? At the proper time. God says, relax. Relax. Take the pressure off of yourself. Relax. Humble yourself. Take the lowest seat. You don't need to rush in and be first. Are we teaching our kids to be first or last? Sadly, most of us are teaching them to be first, not teaching them to take the lowest seat. We're not teaching them to humble themselves. We're teaching them to exalt themselves. Tragic. The Lord alone is to be exalted. Isn't that true? The Lord alone is to be exalted. Psalm 148, verse 13. Let them praise the name of the Lord. For his name alone is exalted. God says in another place, I'll not share my glory with anyone. Why? Because no one is capable of bearing the glory of God. But, 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 can I, nothing I can say? Can I boast in anything? Yes. Yes, if you must boast. I'll give you three things you can boast in. You ready? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31. 1 Corinthians 1, 31. Paul says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Brag on God. You got to brag, brag on God. If that isn't enough for you, here's the second thing you can brag on. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You say, oh, okay, well, I understand. I can, I can boast in God. I can boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. But can I never say anything about me? Yes, you can. <gasps> I can? Yes. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30. If I must boast... If I can't stand it, if I've got to talk about me, and most of us do, he says, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Woo! All right, there you go. (laughs) Do we wave flags about the things that show our weakness? No, we cover them up, we hide, we don't want anybody to see the stuff. We'd never let people know about things that show our weakness. Woo, man, what would someone think? We're not cool. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Paul says of Jesus, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. 
My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Your weakness. The more you're acquainted with your weakness, the more you're at peace with your weakness, the more you're willing to boast in the things that show your weakness, the more available you are to God's power in your life. People say, why can't I know God's power? Because you're so self-focused. But I can't stand it another minute. You don't understand what it's like. It's horrible. I can't. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. When you're at your absolute weakest, when there is no hope for you, when all you can do is just stand there, that's when God's power is made perfect. That's when God's power is made perfect. As long as you can do something, as long as you can exert yourself, guess what? God's just going to stand back say, okay, keep on, go ahead, just exhaust yourself, wear yourself out. And then I, I, will make your path straight. So therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Christ's power. Now, beloved, I want you to understand something. All of these things that I've shared with you, I don't say them to speak in a disparaging or demeaning manner, personally. God is not about trying to degrade us. God is not about trying to destroy us. God is not trying to demean us. You see, sin has already done all that. God is trying to redeem us from the effects of sin. God is trying to save us by His grace. God is trying to recreate us into the image of Christ. But as long as we continue to focus on ourselves and our agendas and what we want and put ourselves first, we continue to hold at bay His grace. We make ourselves impervious to His grace. You know what? You want to live a free life? You want to know the joy and the peace of God in your life? Give up. Give up. Give up. I am so thankful now in my life. I am learning more and more and more now every day, like I never have in my whole life, what it means to be free. I don't have to carry the mantle any longer like I used to of pretense. I don't have to be somebody. I don't have to be cool. I can tell it like it is. I don't have to please anybody. I'm not any man's slave anymore. I don't have to bear the expectations of other people anymore. Because I know the one who loves me. My Redeemer lives. You want to be free? Deny yourself. Get weak. 
get weak. Say, oh, I'm a wimp. Oh, this is great. I'm a wimp. I am weak. I'm not strong. I have no courage. I'm a coward. Oh, hallelujah. I can finally admit I'm a coward. I'm a chicken. I'm foolish. It's great. People can say anything about me they want now because I agree with them. They have nothing on me anymore. I'm free. I'm free. And God's strength, not mine, God's strength is made perfect in my weakness. It's so nice to be a wimp. I never thought I'd say that, but it's the truth. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you make all the difference. Thank you that we don't have to act anymore. Thank you that we can finally be free. We can know your grace and your mercy and your healing power in in our lives. Thank you, Lord, that we're free to love those who don't love us. Thank you that we are free, Lord, to let you sit on the throne and you to guide and direct our life and our path. Lord, help us to know and to trust in these things and to surrender more and more each day to your will. Father, your will be done, not mine. Forgive me for the ways I fall short every day and I take it all back. But Lord, you're teaching me ever so wonderfully and faithfully to continue to surrender to you, to deny myself and pick up that cross and follow you daily. Lord, all of this is going to pass away and it won't be very long now before we'll see you face to face. And Father, then truly we'll say it was worth it. And we long to hear your words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I'll tell you what, let's exalt him, huh? Stand up. Let's exalt the Lord, not ourselves. For thou, O Lord, art high above all the earth. Thou art exalted far above. 